Welcome to Your Team with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. And we're the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. And today we are talking with parenting and resilience expert, Dr. Debbie Gilboa, also known as Dr. G, all about how to best help our college freshmen transition into a new era of their lives. Of course, something that's super relevant this time of year. But before we talk to her, why not? We'll tell you about how it went for us when our kids left for college. Steph, you just had Lane leave right now. Was that different than saying goodbye to the boys? It was maybe a little bit different. It's funny. I was trying to think about those differences (laughs) of knowing what we were going to be talking about. And I think it is exactly what our listeners will hear from Dr. G. It was finding that new space. And it was funny. We dropped her off and we had radio silence for about five or six days. And people were like, oh, how's Lane? I'm like, hmm, no text, nothing. And I thought, well, I think no news is good news. And so, you know, and I kept thinking like, oh my God, is this what hers is going to be like? This is so not what I expected. And, you know, I start writing the whole story in my head. Like anything, just had to settle into a new routine. And I I didn't want to disrupt her routine. And I didn't want to be like, hey, how's it going? Or any of those. And now it's so much more normal. Only a month later, right? But it's like everything we've told her, right? This is your time, your time to be independent, your time, right? But, you know, that didn't include like a trip to the emergency room and being sick, all those things that you don't know are going to come down. So it's, you know, I, I think it's so hard to be patient because you don't know what's coming with each kid. Patience is retrospective. I can have all the patience in the world after I know it was okay. Oh my God, it's so true. That is so well said. When my oldest left a billion years ago, she actually went to Israel for the year. She took a gap year and saying goodbye to her in the airport, like the, the security guards started to cry. We were crying so much. It just had this feeling of like loss, huge, big loss. And when she got to New York and called to say she landed there, I was like, oh, I forgot we're still going to be in a relationship. It was mm. something, it was so devastating to me to say goodbye. And and the recovery was much quicker for me than her. When she got there, there were tears and and adjustment issues and um and it was hard to watch, but you know, the good news is there's nothing I could do about it, you know. So yeah. she she had to navigate that and um and then you know, there's three in the middle and they're you know, you got through it and you know that it's a change, but a change that we can adjust to. And then my baby, our baby left. And that was like, he'd been in our marriage for four years. Like we really had a three-person marriage. In fact, odd person out was actually me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Would have been easier for everybody if I went to college. But um, (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Yeah. (laughs) But saying goodbye to him was really, really hard. And then I know I've told this story before, but then we went to visit our other kids like a day later and we kind of forgot about him a little bit. (laughs) Well, you told me, you gave me that advice. You said, plan a trip for after she leaves. And that's what we did. And we we actually had company here. We were making jokes because of how the holidays fell. And my parents were here, my sister and brother-in-law. And I looked at Todd at one point and with them in the room, of course. And I was like, wait, is this what empty nesting is supposed to be? Because I've actually unloaded and loaded the dishwasher, I think more than when the kids were here. But once they left, (laughs) so a few days later, we, we left for like five days. And that was good. It was a, it was good advice. And it was, a good transition, right? Like we... Yeah, it wasn't my advice. Someone gave it to me also. Like, you know, have a plan because coming home to an empty house can feel kind of 
overwhelming. And by the time we came home from our trip, we were like, okay, so what, is it, what does the future look like for us? What are we going to do? <laughs> How are we filling this void? And we so did a really funny. good job. At, but then they all came home. <laughs> yeah, right. That's <laughs> then right. COVID, COVID hit and our house was not ours again. Yeah. I keep forgetting they're not here. So I have that. That's a funny thing because mm. if like a door is closed, that's how I know my kids are home because doors are closed upstairs. And so now I keep walking around opening them. But like sometimes I'll randomly close one because maybe I didn't want the dog in there or something. And then I'm like, oh my God, I totally forgot Ethan was home. And then I'm like, Ethan's not home. <laughs> like, it's so weird. Yeah. It's so weird. It's like, I forget. It's almost like I need like a, someone to say, you know, okay, so today's Thursday. They're not home. When they are home, when some variation of the theme is home, I have a hard time counting. I wake up in the morning oh, funny. <laughs> and I try to figure out, wait, who is here today and who is not here? Even like, yeah, it's just really weird. Even adding a son-in-law to the story is kind of disruptive for me. And I'm going to make the weirdest analogy ever. Oh, boy. But, well, maybe not ever because I, I might be pretty good at non-segue segues, but I have this thing when I'm wearing my glasses and I put a mask on that it disorients me. So I go to take my glasses off, but they're not on. Or I take the mask off and I, like, I, there's something about it that's so disorienting to me. I'm never quite sure what I needed or didn't need or have on or don't have on. And I get that same disorientation when (laughs) a certain amount of kids are home and not all of them trying to like wake up and go like, who's here? It's like, I don't have a good handle on it. Oh my God. That is funny. Well, I think, you know, the other thing is thinking about, you know, each kid and, you know, we all bring all of our stuff with us and how each kid transitions. And I, I remember thinking this with Lane, maybe going off to kindergarten where I was like, People are like, oh, how are you? And I was like, oh, I'm fine. You know, third one. I'm like, oh, but it's her first time. And, you know, having to keep reminding myself, like it, it was each kid's first time, even if it's your third or your fourth, in your case, your fifth, right? And, you know, it's new to them. And watching each of them figure out what that looks like and what that feels like. And, you know, it's it's such a I don't know. It's like when they turned into teens, it's another step of like watching them take that, you know, another like swim farther out in the pool, right? Like where where they're going to be swimming, where they need help. And I always think it's um, it's fascinating to watch them figure it out. And, why, and you've had more experience because your kids are older. We've had this more of late where the older one asking us like, well, when you and daddy did this or when you like starting to see us as adults, right? Which is so funny. And I remember that in college. I remember going off to college my my freshman year and realizing that like other family structures were different. Some I was surprised by, some I wasn't. And thinking, you know, everything, your own family is quote normal, right? And then you get to college and you get exposure to other people saying like, oh, like, if I never talked to them again, that would be fine. I was like, oh, okay, so that's one way, right? I think that just being exposed to different people, you know, if you're lucky enough, maybe, you know, to go away and different part of the country and what that's like. And, you know, I just keep thinking about, you know, Lane and those goodbyes and what that's going to be like for her. And, you know, as she meets new people and just watching her continue to grow. But that comes with its own heartache because it means, you know, they're farther and farther from from the nest. And I like everybody home in the nest. It makes me very happy. Well, it's clear that our kids are adults. They call us dad and mom. 
<laughs> There's no more daddy and mommy. Oh, I know. Well, they do sometimes well, call, they call us Dan. Sue. And, they do call. Yeah. Well, some of them call us Dan and Sue, and we don't respond to dad and and mom. But like, we're definitely <laughs> not daddy and mommy anymore. And I remember taking one of our kids to college and feeling her uncertainty about us leaving. Actually, it happened more than once with different kids, where we kind of said, you know, we're kind of ready to go. And the kid told us what they needed. Like, so mm. I remember this one kid saying, the only one in, in the place where she was staying, and it was like, you could feel the anxiety. So we said, do you want us to stay for dinner? And they said, what I would love is if you take me to Whole Foods and let me get dinner and take me back here and then I'll be fine. And I thought, okay, this one's done, baked, done. If you can come yeah, up with a solution. Right? Yeah, and, and when we dropped our youngest off, he was a little anxious. And I've already told this where I tried to help him by making a friend for him in the dorm. <laughs> yeah. And that, that was really appreciated. Mm-hmm, yeah. Being introduced by your mother mm-hmm. was really yeah, helpful. Totally. <laughs> um, and, and if anyone's listening, I would say you don't need to try that one. <laughs> it doesn't go well. But you're, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, we did it for you. So he asked us to wait till someone he knew got to school so that he would have a buddy to kind of hang out with that first day. And I always have the feeling like if you can articulate what you need to get through mm-hmm. the hurdle, then I'm, I feel like job done, signing off. Yeah, yeah. But it is definitely, you know, it's a new role and it's, you know, like everything with them, right? New stage, new role. And how do you figure it out? Yeah, so everyone dealing with it right now, um, good luck to you. And we hope you deeply enjoy our conversation with Dr. G because she has some really solid wisdom to share. Up next is our conversation with Dr. Debbie Gilboa. We can't wait for you to join us. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. expert Dr. Deborah Gilboa works with families, educators, executives, and businesses to identify the mindset and strategies to turn stress to an advantage. She is a leading media personality seen regularly on Today, Good Morning America, 
and is the resilience expert for the doctors. She is also featured frequently in the Washington Post, the New York Times, Huffington Post, and countless other digital and print outlets, including your teen media. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Debbie. When your firstborn leaves for college, the transition goes both ways. I remember it so clearly. Your teen is losing their base and learning to adjust to a brand new environment. And I, as a parent, was losing like something like huge that I couldn't wrap my head around, like this day-to-day parenting. So let's start with what's going on right now with teens and their adjustment, and we'll move into the parent aspect of it after. What would you expect would be happening right now with kids who are starting, who started college like a few weeks ago? So they're freshmen, and like likely this story is more exacerbated if it's your first kid going to college. But not for your child, because for them, it's their experience no matter what. So for kids, what's happening right now is it's not orientation week anymore. It's not no homework because we're all getting to know each other in class and introducing ourselves and our content. Now it's getting a little bit more real. Now it's my, you know, I've gone through 10 pairs of underwear and I have to figure out how to do my laundry. And the food in the dining hall with the dining hall options is getting a little repetitive. Like now they're starting to get into the patterns and the structure, which can be really valuable but the bloom is probably off the rose a little bit too. So every kid is different, even in the same family. So some kids will be settling in, others are taking longer. How do we know as the parent when to worry? Because there's so many, you know, they're they're trying to individuate. And so part of that is probably not as much connection to mom and dad, but that's also the, you know, could be the same sign you would see, you know, when there is a problem. So like one mom, for example, emailed us and she said, my kid's not connecting with me. How do I know if, if she, he, they are okay? It's a really important question. I completely understand why that silence fills up with our worries as parents. And I want to encourage you to ask that question of your student to say, okay, we've gotten into a new pattern of communication even if that pattern means not communicating, right? We're in a new (laughs) pattern of communication. I need to know from you when I should worry. And I understand that some kids are going to be like, never, I'm always fine. (laughs) Just leave me be. But it's okay to say, yeah, that's not reasonable. I can't go from 60 to zero and you're in a new environment. And in your entire life, every time you've been in a new environment, there are things that I've checked in on. And that's part of my job is to understand how to take your temperature. You know, we have been taking kids' temperatures, physical temperatures, more in the last year than in all Mm -hmm. of my parent years put together. Agree? Right? So the question (laughs) this year, all parents about all our kids actually, is how do we figure out how to take their mental health temperature in ways that are not super invasive, but are pretty reliable? So one way is definitely to say to your child, yeah, this is information I need. I've heard too many horrible stories. I know too many other kids who are in your situation who are struggling. So I need to know from you, what are the yellow flags I should be looking for? And I need a minimum requirement check-in. I need that once a week. You know, if you want to go back to when we were growing up, that once a week (laughs) Sunday night at 9 p.m. when the rates fell and you're on the payphone check-in, or I need a proof of life text every morning or whatever it is, negotiate it. But there are a couple of other things you can do too. You can make sure you're cultivating the web that catches your kids when they're struggling. Not if, of course, at some point in this journey, they will struggle. So it's not only you, I hope, 
I hope there are some number of people, an old youth group advisor or coach or teacher that they check in with, or somebody at the school, an older student that can just like lay eyes on them and be like, yeah, I saw them smile today. Not that we should, and we should be really transparent about that. That is not a hidden network of spies telling you how your child is doing. It's to say, if you want me to accept less communication between us, kiddo, one of the things I'm going to do is ask other people who have touch points with you to check in and let me know if they feel like you're doing okay or not. Wow, Debbie, that is unbelievable. Like, we've been talking about this topic for so long, and just both of those pieces, checking in with your kid, like, upfront honest, like, why not? Mm -hmm. And then saying, if we're not going to have a regularly scheduled program, then we need someone else to have that with you. I love that. Okay, so we're going to do a little pivot now on how are the parents doing right now. So one of the things we hear about all the time is this idea that in high school, we should be transitioning from this idea of manager to consultant. And we've also heard it from rescuing to empowering. Is there a different analogy for what we should be doing as our kids leave for college? No, we're still a consultant, but we're going from that daily in the office consultant role to a called in once a week or once a month consultant role. And so I really like that image of consultant for two reasons. One, a consultant is usually someone you hire to tell you things you already know but don't want to hear from a business standpoint, right? If you, everyone in the business world can check that in their own minds and be like, yep, that's what consultants do. And speaking as a consultant, I can tell you that's what consultants do. But the other thing is consulting is a relationship you take on. You say, yeah, I need this. And one of the things about parenting in high school and college is helping our kids understand our role and our purpose. And one of the struggles, I think, Sue, that you pointed out at the beginning of this conversation is that although our purpose doesn't change, our purpose is to help raise these people to be successful, healthy humans, healthy in every sense of the word, as best we can, our role in that is changing, but it's not disappearing. We don't check out. There's no victory lap in parenting. You know, peace out, see on Instagram, hope it goes well. It's just not like that. And so since that's the case, the more clarity we can have about our role for ourselves and for our kids, the healthier that consulting relationship is likely to be. All that said, parents are also now getting into the structure and the routine of not having that child at home. And it's not that first brunch empty nesting that felt so good or that impromptu movie date that I have time for now that blush is off the rose too. Now we're settling into fewer people around the dinner table, missing that kiddo's help around the house or perspective about something funny that you went through. Like it's getting to feel more real. Let's talk about this idea of rescuing our kids. (laughs) So let's talk about why is it bad for them? So 2% of the time, it's not bad for them. 2% of the time, they are in a situation that is really above their pay grade. It's actually dangerous and not just terribly, terribly uncomfortable. And if it's actually dangerous, then that 2% of the time, they need us to protect them with our body and our voices and our resources and save them. The problem for us is the 98% of the time where it's terribly uncomfortable, but not actually dangerous and uncomfortable is where we learn as people. That's where they need to learn. Sitting on our hands and watching them and having empathy for what they're going through without offering solutions is the hardest thing we do as parents. It's our hardest work, I really believe, even harder than advocating for them. All right, well, so it's really hard. 
We know it's really hard. We see evidence that it's really, really hard. How do I do it? I mean, honestly, I've let go five times and it's really, really hard. How do you oh, do it? Oh, come on. Tell us it gets easier, Sue. We need that encouragement. <laughs> it does get easier. It really absolutely does get easier. But I would say what gets most easiest is, you know, you survive. You, you know, you survive and you know you thrive. So And that your kids survive. And right? hopefully that your kids are surviving and thriving. But it is really hard. It is. So I want you to remind yourself of your purpose. Whoever's listening to this right now and they've just got a call or a text from their kid and they could fix it and they want to fix it, and they're trying to decide if they should, I would ask you, will your child learn more? Learn more. Not know that you love them. That's important, but they know it. Not feel supported and loved, but learn more if you fix it or if you don't. Because your purpose is to raise them to be the parents of your precious grandchildren, right? They have to be able to solve some stuff on their own. They have to know. And and this is your opportunity to prove that you believe in them. We tell our kids we're proud of them and we believe in them and we have faith in them and they can do everything. But we often rob them of the opportunity to learn, to see that for themselves. And we rob ourselves of the opportunity to really walk that talk. Often those opportunities are really painful, much harder for us than it turns out it is for our kids. Give us one example of like what you hear is the most egregious that doesn't that is in the 98%. The most egregious, I can pick from a long line, uh, but I'm going to say tracking kids' location. Oh, that's a good one. As you guys know, I'm uh, I'm one of the experts on a TV daytime TV show called The Doctors, and they had me on to talk about tracking kids. And they had this mom on as the story, as the counterpoint. She was told she knew exactly what was happening here, what this conversation was. She wanted to talk about how she still tracks her kids, and they're getting really salty about it. And she wanted to know, should she shut them down and be like, hey, I'm your mama? Or what should she do? And her kids were a freshman and a junior at Stanford University. And and you're kind of waiting for me to be like, they're in sixth and eighth grade or they're freshman and junior in high school at Stanford. And her kids were starting, her junior was starting to get salty about this. Like, hey, it's one o'clock in the morning. I see you're still at a friend's house kind of thing. And what I want to say about this is I understand the superficial comfort of knowing where our kids are or knowing we can know where our kids are every moment of every day. I have a son quite literally going into the military in a war-torn country. I get it. Here's the thing. It is like ice cream when you're sad. It feels good for a minute, but it does (laughs) not solve the underlying issue and it can cause more problems. We know that tracking our kids, especially young adults, but actually in high school as well, does not, has never been proved to save their life. Everybody has a great Life 360 story, right? But it turns out that when you compare it to kids in similar situations without tracking devices, kids are not safer when they're tracked. And it demonstrably, in research, raises anxiety levels for parents, but that's your life and you're a grown up if that's what you choose to do, and for kids. It raises their anxiety. And not just their feeling of nervousness in that moment, but their long-term anxiety and hypervigilance. It raises their cortisol levels. Basically, what we're saying is, I'm sending you out into the big bad world, but you can't handle it without me in your pocket. At first, it's really hard to cut that cord. And, and I have tons of empathy for that. I really do. But we've done other things that were best for our kids and hard for us. 
we can do this. We're parents. We do hard things because it's what's best for our kids. We hear these examples, right, of parents intervening where there is a roommate problem or my kid doesn't like the food. And, you know, those examples are a little easier to see, you know, that our college-age kids could and should address those themselves. But are there any place for parents once kids leave our homes? You know, and what, what does it look like? Here is the big question for us. Every time your child is faced with a problem and you have that gut to intervene or flat out, they ask you to intervene because that happens too. Let's not imagine that it's all us imposing ourselves. Our kids come to us. I have a story from an organization that I work with to train their staff, their RA age, you know, 18 to 25 year old staff to help younger students. And they're like, yeah, we get kids who, instead of coming to us to find out why their room doesn't have a garbage can, they call their parents and ask their parents to figure it out. So <laughs> this is not only parents, let's just be clear. But here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Is it dangerous or is it just terribly uncomfortable? And understanding that Venn diagram of danger and discomfort is hard because they both feel pretty awful. Discomfort, that feeling in your gut that this could be bad, this might not be okay, I hate this. We have as parents and our kids certainly have kind of, we have internalized the idea that discomfort is in and of itself a problem that must be defibrillated, that must be shockingly fixed immediately, as opposed to figuring out healthy ways to manage discomfort while pushing through. So what we have to do is ask ourselves, is this actually dangerous now? And if it's actually dangerous now, that's our role. That'll be our role in our loved ones' lives, our whole lives, to help when we feel that there is actual danger. But your set point might not be quite on target. So you might say, okay, I do that. And that roommate problem is dangerous because if this happens and then this happens and then this happens, too many if-thens. Danger is one if-then. If you have to jump two or three or four stones on the path, then probably it's just terribly, terribly uncomfortable. But if you're sure that it's dangerous, an example I often use is I've had a mom come to me legit say, look, I understand that struggling and getting an F on a math quiz in fourth grade probably isn't dangerous, but in the middle of the night, it feels to me like it is because my daughter's gonna hate math and girls who hate math don't do as well in STEM subjects and they don't get accepted to college in the same ways and there aren't the same career options available and my daughter is going to be homeless living in a box under a bridge (laughs) from the F on the fourth grade math quiz. And I understand that downward spiral. I think a lot of parents do, but it's too many if-thens for it to actually be a danger right now. If there's one if-then that's genuinely dangerous, you know, life-threatening, then jump in. And if you're not sure, talk to another trusted adult, somebody else who knows your kid, gets your kid, that you trust to have your kid's best interest at heart, and run it by them. Wow, you really can capture things in like those sound bites. The one, no more than one if then. Like that just says it all, really says it all. So I'm going to move into the thing that we really all fear, which is driving us to all of these conversations is what if that crisis leads to death for our kid? And there's a story. I watched this video yesterday of a mom who's trying to get some power behind college sports and what happens when kids get injured and get depressed. And and she lost a daughter to suicide in college. And that kid got injured in the sport they were there to play in and, and spiraled out of control. And the real struggle in that story is that the signs that they saw in advance are the signs that we also tell people 
could be normal. So she's with, she's pulling away from them. And we say, well, that's good in college. She's Her grades are stumbling a little bit. And they say to themselves, well, let's give her some space. I mean, she doesn't always have to be perfect, right? And then it turns out that, that was, those were red flags for this particular child. And that's, that is what we all desperately want to know as parents. When do we jump in and when do we step back? And are there, is, there, is there a real way to know that? I can totally hear people listening to this conversation and saying, how am I supposed to know if it's danger? I'm not there. And even if I am there, because I have to be honest, I have these conversations with families and I work with families in seminars to help them understand even in middle school and high school, they're saying I'm there, but they're in their room or they're on their device or they give me one word answers. So it's not that it's obvious if you're in the same house and it isn't if you're not. But I want to say, first of all, yes, it's scary. And not every child who dies by suicide or suffers in the attempt had any red or yellow flags. We know that a small proportion of these kids fronted totally usual behavior all the way up until that life-threatening event. So not every person who dies by suicide had missed warning signs. So all those things are true. In some ways, as far as the entirely missed, you know, there's nothing to miss, there were no warning signs, that is a little bit like dying of a devastating surprise aneurysm. You just could not have known, and it's a tragedy, but that's how it is. As far as when do we're seeing some things and we're trying to figure out how do I know if it's normal or not, which I know is the question you actually asked me, I would say this. If your child has had an event like a career-ending or even just a season-ending injury, or they had their heart set on a Greek invitation and it didn't come through and they're not Greek when most of the people they know now are going to be this year or they get kicked out of their major even though they don't get kicked out of school right they've had a what could be a potential potential trauma and I can define trauma if you want but what could be a potential trauma then even if they tell you they're entirely okay go get them help just like if your child had a fall down a whole bunch of stairs knocked their head good, but they seem to be behaving okay, you take them to the doctor anyway. Look, I know you seem fine and this might be unnecessary, but I need to know that you're physically okay. We get to do the same thing. If they had a fever of 105 one day and then they seem totally fine, you'd be like, yeah, but that was a fever of 105. We're going to a doctor. (laughs) So even though otherwise you feel fine, it is really okay to say, hey, I'm your parent. Safeguarding your health is one of my, still a really important part of my role. We're just gonna go and get you someone to talk to on a regular basis so that we're not in this alone. We need some professional support. That's one situation. If there was no traumatic event, but your child has a, has a history of, or a family history of mood instability, and now they're in a new setting, no matter how they're doing, I would really encourage them to engage with student counseling because just changing venue like that is a big event. So if they have a personal history or you have a very strong family history of mood instability, that's enough to say, yeah, you totally do this. And just like if your kid had a a math learning challenge, you'd be like, hey, in college, you're going to need a math tutor. Sorry, we're doing it right. You're going to need that support. You have a mood stability challenge. That's not anything you did. It's not a punishment. You need the support. That's got to be part of our plan. Does any of that help answer your question, though, Sue? Yeah, actually, I think it does, because I think it gives permission to parents to say, I'm uncomfortable with this right now. And one of the ways you're going to make me feel more comfortable is to go talk to somebody. And it's and and actually, 
making me feel more comfortable is part of your role in our relationship. Yeah, I tell that to my husband when he's driving. <laughs> Separate topic. <laughs> How much time do you have, Debbie? Okay. So let's end on something hopeful and maybe inspiring, I hope. Tell us what's the biggest myth about raising teenagers. The biggest myth about raising teenagers is that they don't want their parents in their lives. It's absolutely not true. They are, and this is demonstrated over and over again in research, both that we are really impactful in their important decision-making, right? The stuff about their safety and about their health and about their relationships and their intimacy and their substance use. We are the most impactful, even more impactful than their peers, than social media, all of those other things, which are a voice in their head. We're the most impactful. So all those little conversations you have had about their values over two decades have dripped water on the stone, much more effective than blasting that stone with a fire hose. Then you just get a clean rock. But if you drip water slowly over time, you make impressions and you carve that rock. You have carved that rock. The other thing I wanna say is, it's not only about their behaviors and in their decision-making, they want us in their lives. They consider us their biggest role models, the biggest impact. You don't stop making that impact when you don't live in the same home. You just create new patterns and new structure. This is an evolving time. However your relationship is in the first six months of their college experience is not the same patterns it's going to look like. But the ways in which you speak to each other, the respect you show, the interest you have, the empathy you offer, that can carve the new patterns that you really want. Dr. Debbie Gilboa, lovingly known as Dr. G, thank you so much. This was unbelievable. Like, honestly, will change people's lives. So I just want to put out there, if you felt that way when you were listening to this, please share it with someone else whose life is going to be changed also. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for joining us for the Your Teen Podcast. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. If you're someone who reads an article and thinks of that one friend who has to read it too, think of our podcast the same way. Please share with that friend who's going to say, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't know about Your Teen with Sue and Steph. And do us a favor and review and rate the show on the podcast platform of your choice. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach, and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. We'll see you next time. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.